It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the front lines of the war in Ukraine, hear how Russia's foreign minister is escalating the invasion, and analyse Putin's first 24 hours in Iran. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 20th of July, day 147, and today I'm joined by foreign reporter Verity Bowman, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilieva. I started by asking Verity for the latest updates from the front lines. Um, Hello. Yes, of course. So I think the main one that we're looking at right now is that British military intelligence has said that Russia is making quite minimal gains in the eastern Donbass region. And it's sort of known that the problem is going to be coming a bit worse for them. So right now, Moscow has about six separate armies in in its Donbass offensive. But um, the MOD has suggested that its troop numbers are significantly decreasing. And what it's looking like is that the bulk of Russia's troops are bogged down because of fierce Ukrainian resistance. And what we do know is that Ukraine is using more effective US weapons. And what all of this has done is that it's led to Russia's defence minister to order the military to act more aggressively to down those Ukrainian drones and prevent the army from shelling areas that have been taken by Russian forces. And what Ukraine is hoping is that Kyiv could drain the Russian military resources in the fight for Donbass and then, because of this, launch a counter-offensive to reclaim control of the Kherson region and maybe parts of the Zaporizhia region, which we know Russia seized early on in the war. And overall, the MOD thinks that Russia is soon going to face a dilemma. It can either deploy reserves to the Donbass or it can defend against Ukrainian counter-attacks in Kherson. So they've got a bit of a dilemma coming up. Thanks, Verity. And you mentioned Curzon there. Am I right in saying that there was a very significant bridge attack there yesterday? Yeah, so Ukrainian forces struck and severely damaged a bridge over the Dnipro River in the Curzon region. 
and that bridge is really key for supplying Russian troops in southern Ukraine. The bridge has been a key target for Russian forces in recent days. And um, what happened in the attack was Ukraine used 12 shells, and these are from the newly arrived high mobility, high mobility artillery rocket systems. And these are US supplied, a US supplied long artillery range weapon, which Kiev is hoping will turn the tide of the war. The bridge had some pretty serious damage, but it isn't close to traffic just yet. But what we do know is that Ukraine is likely to keep attacking it. And the Russian administration has conceded that they're worried it could collapse completely. Thanks, Verity. Now, just earlier, you mentioned the Russian defence minister and what he has said regarding um, the fights in the Donbass. Now, France is our assistant comment editor. If I could hand over to you, I think Sergei Lavrov has said some really significant things this morning. Am I right in saying Yes, well, thank you, Sophie. Thank you, everyone, for listening at home. Yes, an interesting uh, remarks made literally in just the past hour or so uh, by the Russian minister, Sergei Lavrov, um, of, uh, on focusing on foreign affairs. Uh, essentially, he said that Russia's military aims in Ukraine are no longer focused only on the country's east, uh, adding that the supplies of Western weapons has changed the Kremlin's calculus. And I quote here, the geography is different now. It is not only about the Donetsk and Luhansk, but also the Kurzon region and a number of other territories. The process is continuing consistently and persistently. Obviously, the significance of this is Russia are trying to make it clear to the international community that they are not have not been impeded and pinned down in these eastern regions as the as the current narrative is, that their intention is to take that territory and then potentially to proceed onwards due to the continual Western interference in the war and in the kind of weapons that they are, uh, that the Western powers have been giving uh, the, the Ukrainians in order to resist. Now, of course, a large part of this will be also playing for a domestic audience at home in Russia. And, and, and no doubt Natalia will be able to talk about that later on. Um, but nonetheless, this feels quite significant at a moment of the war when clearly Russia is trying to fight back on both the military and diplomatic level trying to claw back a sense of, of them having momentum once again. It was very clear in, in, in recent months that, that, that the Russia, Russians had completely underestimated the scale of the resistance in Ukraine and thus had to adapt their strategy accordingly. But it would appear now that they are trying to regain some of the initiative as they fight a more defensive war and the kind of progress that the Ukrainians have made in um, it recently has, has inevitably been slowed as a, as a part of them uh, fighting a different kind of war, but also um, having uh, better artillery in order to be able to keep the Ukrainians at distance. So um, that's what's at stake here. Um, and it feels, as I say, a, a, a moment, particularly when also viewed in light of Putin's visit to Iran, and we'll come to that, uh, as as being of, 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 uh, of, as I say, an attempt to reclaim the narrative and of significance as a result. Thanks, Francis. And it does feel like an opportune moment to come to Natalia, our Russia correspondent. How do you think that Lavrov's words will go down in Russia, bearing in mind that he's... Exp literally expanding the objectives of the special military operation in inverted commas. 
Yeah, I don't think it will strike anyone as surprising in Russia, to be honest, because uh, President Putin has already kept Russian public very confused. He started off by announcing the invasion, saying that we aim to, quote, demilitarize and denazify uh, Ukraine. He insisted that, again, it's a direct quote, uh, Russia has no intention of occupying any parts of another country. And here we are. Obviously, a Russian administration has been operational in all of Kherson and in parts of Zaporizhia for um almost five months now um, and uh, Russian TV viewers have for months seen footage from those regions saying showing how uh, uh, how Russian administration is uh, is in charge how they are changing price tags to the rubles or how schools are getting ready to switch to Russian curriculum um, the, the whole strategy of the Kremlin in, in recent months have been to confuse the public as much as possible so that nobody really understand what the aims of, of the war is. and I I remember way back in the first week of the war, uh, colleagues from one of Russian uh, Russia's media outlets, they complied a whole list of um, Russia's stated uh, goals in the war. And it was something like six points. That's, that's how often the Kremlin has changed its line and has uh, changed its rhetoric. So uh, public has been confused and it will stay confused for a while. Thanks, Natalia. Um, before we move on to Putin's visit to Iran... Francis, can you tell us about um, the announcement from Syria today? Yes, well, quite an interesting remarks made uh, by the Syrian uh, leadership, um, perhaps unsurprising. It's announced that it's severing ties with Ukraine um, in its support of its close ally, Russia saying it's in response to a similar move by Kiev. Now, just offering a little bit of background to this, of course, um, Russia was the main supporter of Bashir al-Assad, the Syrian leader during the Syrian civil war, um, and providing weapons and even troops on the ground uh, during that conflict. The, Of course, this in many ways marked one of Russia's heaviest interventions in the region in recent years. This was all in the backdrop, if you're a member of the atrocities that were being committed by the Syrian regime, which included chemical warfare. And then Putin sort of stepped in supposedly to to stop this um, when it was clear that the West didn't have the initiative to do so. But really, of course, it, is, it enabled him to have a close ally in the region, which, of course, is now paying dividends as he tries to act as a broker in the region. And as I say, we will come to that. But just one other remark on, on Syria, as I've talked about on before on this podcast, I think the significance of that conflict will be one that will no doubt be discussed in real detail by historians. If we think back to 2013, it was a real opportunity for the West to say that there are certain actions on the international stage that are deemed beyond the pale, such as chemical warfare, such as the kind of destructive damage wrought on cities like Aleppo. And yet, of course, what happened instead was that that Bashir al-Assad was essentially able to get away with those uh, those strategies being adopted. Uh, There was a parliamentary vote here, uh, which the then Prime Minister David Cameron lost in an attempt to intervene in Syria. That then set the tone for how America reacted. Barack Obama actually said in his memoirs that I wrote read recently 
uh, that that shaped his decision making on the decision to intervene in Syria. And indeed, as I say, I think that there will be historians in the future who will say that that was a critical moment where perhaps Russian interference in the Middle East could have been prevented or at least slowed in some way. But furthermore, it could have set the tone that way well have prevented it being acceptable for the kind of strategies and tactics that have been adopted by Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. So Syria, its remarks today and, and criticisms of Ukraine, I don't think should come as any great shock. But the significance of Syria and the significance particularly of the civil war in 2013 is of immense significance, I think. Thank you, Francis. Now, from Syria to Iran, yesterday we spoke a lot about the significance of Putin's visit to Iran, only the second international trip he has made since the out the invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th. Verity, we're 24 hours in. How is the visit going so far and what have we seen come out of it so far? Um, OK, so on the agenda um, for this meeting was the unblocking of Ukrainian grain exports via the Black Sea. And what Putin said today is that some progress has been made there. And as we touched upon just then, the civil war in Syria was another part. And that's significant because Turkey and Russia have historically backed opposing sides. The summit was really a chance for Putin to show that he has international allies. And he's wanting to show that Russia hasn't been entirely isolated by international sanctions and that it does have some backers sticking around. But what we need to remember is that Putin doesn't have many places he can turn to for support for his special military operation in Ukraine, but he can reply, rely on Iran. So Iran's leader said the countries need to stay vigilant against what he called Western deception. And he added that Tehran and Moscow should strengthen their ties and suggested that the West was to blame for the war in Ukraine. He also said that the West opposes a strong and independent Russia. So I guess, in a sense... Russia got some of what it wanted. But on the flip side, the US said that Putin's visit to Iran showed just how isolated Russia is and has been following the, following the invasion. I think something that we also saw was Putin and Erdogan didn't actually come across as firm allies. There was that awkward moment when Putin was left standing in front of TV cameras while he waited for him to arrive. So what the main outcomes will be remain to be seen. Thanks, Verity. Francis, what did you make of of um, the outcomes of the first day of the trip? Well, yes, I'd first I would jump in on, on what Verity was saying there. Quite a remarkable footage to see President Erdogan leave Putin waiting. Of course, this is a strategy that Putin himself has adopted in the past, leaving Western leaders standing rather awkwardly. I think he did that to Angela Merkel um, several years ago. And uh, yes, it's, it was remarkable seeing it done to him. And I think we can certainly assume that it was uh, intended by President Erdogan, perhaps as a way of still showing that it seeks to play both or be an ally of both Russia and the West. Of course, Turkey being a NATO member and has had quite a heavily involved in this conflict in the sense of providing drones for the Ukrainians. So I think we can read something into that. But still, nonetheless, I think we shouldn't read too much into it. I mean, at the end of the day, President Erdogan was still willing to meet Vladimir Putin. And I was very, very struck seeing the footage of them shaking hands that I thought, would this have happened two or three months ago? You know, there was talk of Putin being completely and utterly diplomatically isolated, the point that no world leader would want to be see seeing shaking hands with him. And yet that's exactly what we saw. 
that in itself I found rather concerning, I must admit. Um, but I think, as I say, that, that there is something certainly true in, in, in what Verity was saying, that in, in the bigger picture, it speaks volumes that, that it's only Iran, really, that, that Putin has been able to meet properly face to face and have these kind of remarks being made around him. And one of the other remarks that that, that um, the Supreme Leader Khomeini said is, quote, if the road would have been open to NATO, it, it will not recognise any limit and boundary. So again, playing into this this Russian narrative and also a narrative, of course, which Iran is sympathetic to, the, of sort of Western imperialism and that NATO being a an imperialist enterprise as opposed to a defensive contract. So um, we're seeing here the geographical blocks that, of course, we've talked about many uh, times on this podcast between the sort of democratic Western style uh, capitalist world and sort of new autocratic collectivist theocratic alternative. And we'll come later on. I'd like to talk a little bit more about China um, in relation to that. But I think at this stage, at the beginning of of, of this uh, this summit, it's it's proved influential, I think, for Putin in terms of the optics. But I don't think we should necessarily say that it's been an all out success for him yet. Do you agree, Natalia? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I would add about Erdogan, it's not, um, I mean, another dimension to that of him shaking hands with Putin and being seen with him, uh, being seen on stage with someone who's often described as an international pariah is that it gives Turkey a chance to act as a power broker, to act as a powerful mediator. Uh, you might remember that it was Turkey that hosted um, the initial rounds of Ukraine-Russia talks, and now it's Erdogan who's mediating between Russia and Ukraine as far as grain supply is concerned. So I would say that um, for Erdogan, it's quite easy to explain why he's meeting Putin, if you wanted to put it this way, because he would always be able to say that, you know, look, I'm meeting him because I'm mediating, because I'm trying to restart grain exports. And that's uh, uh, that's a real coup for him, both domestically and internationally, I would say. If I could just jump in on that, I think that's absolutely correct in the case of, of, of Erdogan. Um, but I think that this is going to be one of the great conundrums faced by Western leaders if, as seems now very likely, Vladimir Putin is is in office for for a sustained period, regardless of what happens in Ukraine. Because can you really have a situation where there is a world leader like Putin who has the weapons that he has in terms of nuclear capabilities and uh, in, you know involved in very high profile peace talks we hope at some stage or um, that, that will bring about an end to the war obviously we hope in a, in a direction of the one that that, that, that that keeps Ukrainian sovereignty entirely intact but um, is will will leaders like President Biden, uh, whoever the future British Prime Minister is, will they continue to say we will not have any dealings with Vladimir Putin because he is a war criminal, he belongs in The Hague, or will they be forced to have similar uh, kind of engagements with him, shaking hands or having summits, etc.? I think this is going to be a real conundrum for, for Western leaders looking ahead. Thanks, Francis. And now um, Natalia mentioned grain. It's obviously the most at the centre of this summit. Putin's given a grain ultimatum, you might say, yet in the last 24 hours. Can you give us a bit more info on exactly what he said? 
Yeah, so we spoke yesterday about this and I was perhaps the pessimist in the room about the uh, likelihood of there being some sort of deal. Um, and uh, there are still some, some clearly uh, there is a deal that Putin feels to be struck. But to my point yesterday, that one of the few benefits or advantages that, that, that Putin has in his war opposed to the Western powers is that he is he's able to threaten Europe with energy embargoes, but also with this issuation around food and the impact this is having all around the world. So it is not in his interests to really end that, I would argue, or if it is does end, it has to be in a way that benefits him financially and in a way that is extremely considerable. So what he has said is that Moscow would only ease the path for Black Sea exports of Ukrainian grain if the West lifts sanctions on Russia. So obviously a very, very big ask from him. Um, uh, not surprisingly, this is at the, the meeting with uh, President Erdogan and the Supreme Leader Khamenei. And he said that he's ready to facilitate this um, if the remaining curbs are specific to grain exports be removed entirely. And I quote, we will facilitate the export of grain, but we are proceeding from the fact that all restrictions related to air deliveries for the export of grain will be lifted. But he continues, as you know, Americans have lifted, essentially lifted restrictions on the supply of Russian fertilizers to world markets. If they sincerely want to improve the situation on the international food markets, I hope the same will happen with the supply of Russian grain for export. So just look at the narrative there and the, the rhetoric uh, coming from Russia, which is sort of like, we're willing to do everything that you want. You know, we're willing to end this food crisis tomorrow, if only you're willing to go one step further and end these sanctions. Of course, it won't be, I think, in the West's interest to do so for the reasons that we've been talking about. But because of the pressure that is currently on Western leaders in their own countries around inflation, this will be a really live issue. And no doubt there will be very serious discussions happening in Germany and uh, and, and France and, and even in Britain around this. Just the point that he makes there about uh, Americans have lifted restrictions on fertilisers. This is true. And indeed, this is another concerning trend that sort of behind closed doors, there are certain measures that are taking place that are easing things, I think, for Russia slightly. Um, and this is, of course, what we always worried about and predicted would, would occur that as the longer the war went on, that there would and, and the more challenging the economic situation globally, that these kind of things would slip through. And as I say, it speaks to the current conundrum faced by Western leaders, which have been no doubt um, weakened by this domestically by the war in Ukraine, is the extent to which they remain absolutely committed to a Ukrainian victory um, or whether they will be saying that in public, be saying other things in private. Personally, I think that there is still enormous resolve in Western capitals to make sure that this war ends in a way that is entirely favourable to the Ukrainians. However, they will be, I think, have been forced to adapt a strategy that is also semi-pragmatic in the short term as it tries to wean itself off Russian gas and dependency on its food and Ukrainian food supply. So they're adapting, I think, a longer term strategy than one perhaps we envisaged um, when the war began. But we, of course, will be able to measure that in the weeks ahead. Certainly. And Natalia, do you agree with that? Can you see this deal or the, the slight manoeuvring on sanctions happening? 
Well, what I can see is um, it looks like there there could be a grain deal in the, in the works. Um, um, obviously, it's very hard to say um, if the U.S. were willing to budge on the sanctions. They did um, scrap the restrictions on the um, on the supplies of Russian fertilizers. Um, so it's not inconceivable to think that they would lift some other limitations. Although, obviously, we're not talking about. Um, uh, the most um, uh, the most punitive sanctions and, and the bulk of the sanctions that have been adopted in in recent months. Uh, what we are seeing uh, right now is a classical Putin tactic when he would create a crisis, um, he would um, come up with like a completely artificial problem that would be of his own making, and he would be the one to offer a solution, because obviously there was no grain crisis and. Um, there was no looming uh, famine in Africa before Russia started the war and uh, blocked uh, Ukrainian ships from leaving. So it would be um, it would be a typical Putin something we've seen in the past two decades for him to create a problem and then basically offer uh, the West a solution and uh, um, sort of present them with a bill to pay to um, um, uh, to solve this current problem. Thanks, Natalia. And I just want to say a special thank you as well to Verity Bowman, who joined us for the first bit of this podcast and now has to run back to our really busy foreign desk. So thank you, Verity, for your ongoing reporting and for joining us today. Um, we've spoken. We've spoken a bit about um, China on this podcast before. Now, today, the first sea lord said something extremely um, interesting. Francis, do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Well, yes. The first sea lord here in Britain, Admiral Sir Ben Key, has said that China is a more dangerous foe than Russia. His essential argument is by focusing so solely on the bear, Russia, risks missing the tiger. And China will have been emboldened by the Ukrainian war. Now, we've talked, as you say, about China a lot on this podcast, and I think it's fair to say that actually his arguments and here and remarks are not shouldn't be seen as controversial because NATO very recently made sort of similar comments, really, that the end of strategic ambiguity was over. Um, quote, the People's Republic of China's stated ambitions and coercive policies challenge our interests, security and values, claim that China strives to subvert the rules-based international order, seeks to control key technological and industrial sectors, as well as critical infrastructure, has a malicious cyber and hybrid operations and disinformation and targets allies. So, this is no doubt a, 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 an, a, an important uh, remark, but I think it should be seen in the context of what I was saying earlier on about these shifting geopolitical plates, as it were, um, that is realigning on the kind of autocratic democratic basis. And as I was speaking about at length yesterday, so I won't duplicate myself again, um, that, that really we need to see Ukraine as being at the centre of this shift and that whatever happens in Ukraine will set a tone, I think, for the coming decades 
in terms of which direction certain countries move into. Do they follow China and Russia if they are seen to have been emboldened by this conflict? Or do they follow the West, which can be renewed and unified and strengthened as a consequence of defeat for Russia and its invasion of Ukraine? So, um, of course, just one other remark of China that I think that has to be said is that the West is waking up very late to this, as it waked, argued, arguably um, woke up too late with regard to Russia. I mean, the level of Chinese investment in Britain alone is incredibly striking. British universities, I think, have accepted £240 million from Chinese institutions. There's been extremely heavy investment in nuclear power here. I think almost all of the nuclear power stations in Britain have have investment. Of course, during the COVID pandemic, there was the Hawaii scandal, the technology giant in China wanted to have um, almost enormous influence over over uh, telecommunications here in Britain. So then this has been China's strategy to use their uh, finances to essentially wage an economic war around the world, investing also in emergent economies so that they can then control. I talked about Sri Lanka yesterday, so they can then control those and, 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 and have their sort of stake in them so that when this sort of new Cold War emerges, if indeed it's inevitable, they will be in a strong position. So very interesting remarks. Shouldn't be seen as unusual in contrast to what NATO has been saying, but interesting nonetheless. But that doesn't mean, as I say, that it should demean the significance of Ukraine. Far from it. Thanks, Francis. Natalia, I wonder if you had any thoughts on almost the similarities or differences between the situation in, of China and Russia at the moment, geopolitically. Well, I think Francis has covered it, um, has covered pretty much all of it. Uh, I mean, one thing that we should mention, which maybe is um, um, already quite obvious, is that uh, the war in Ukraine has been devastating for the Russian army. And I think the latest I've heard, and that was about two or three weeks ago, was that Russia has already lost a third of its um, combat capability. And obviously, this is not something that can be uh, built back, um, um, you know, uh, as, as, as fast as, as one might expect. So obviously, um, if you speak about comparing Russia and China in purely military terms, in terms of their armies, um, the invasion of Ukraine has been has had a devastating effect on, on the Russian army, which will take um, years to rebuild after that. Thanks, Natalia. Now, moving on from the Russian army to the propaganda that it's putting out. There was a story that you wrote in this morning's paper in regard to Russia's best known propagandist who's been making some threats towards the UK. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, sure. Um, Vladimir Solovyov is not just any other TV hosts. He um, has quite rightly been described as Russia's propagandist in chief. Um, He um, has a prime time uh, news talk show, and uh, since the war started, um, he was allocated a channel of his own that broadcasts uh, his programs or programs that he produces or co produces. So he has quite a sway on Russian state media landscape, and he's also someone who um, who is known to say. Um, um, outrageous things that sometimes uh, reflect Kremlin thinking of thinking people uh, thinking of uh, those close to the Russian government but uh, he's quite candid, candid about what he's saying and he's quite um, outspoken in a way that 
uh, Kremlin officials sometimes would be too shy to, to formulate it quite the same way. So on a program yesterday, he... Um, he attacked the UK again, which he has done in the past, mostly um, for uh, the UK's support for Ukraine and its um, um, efforts in helping with um, relief, um, re- relief efforts in Ukraine. He has mentioned the UK, saying that uh, um, latching on comments from the chief of the British uh, Armed Forces, who suggested that Russia would be posing a threat to the world for the next decade, um, Vladimir Salavyov um, basically mocked the admiral and uh, suggested that uh, Moscow could wipe out uh, the entire country with just one um, intercontinental ballistic missile. But he also uh, quite interestingly remarked that Russia would be targeting England, but it wouldn't be targeting Scotland, Wales um, or Northern Ireland, because in his thinking, um, those parts of the UK uh, should become independent. If I could just comment on this as well, very remarkable, um, (laughs) these remarks, aren't they? I mean, extraordinary. Um, I I felt that, uh, you know, there is a political dynamic to this, of course, which is that they is in Russia's interest to try and break up the United Kingdom and 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 weaken Britain's role on the world stage. Of course, Scottish independence remains a key issue here. And so his remarks around Scottish independence and not attacking Scotland, I think, should be seen as as a, to deliberately uh, um, being supportive of that notion and undermining British unity. Of course, also his remarks on Wales. But just the other thing I wanted to comment on this is by talking about Northern Ireland and saying that um, that they, they want to see a united Ireland, as well as being part of the same strategy of undermining the UK. I think it is significant given Biden's recent remarks on Northern Ireland as well, which he compared the sort of struggle of Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland in the 20th century with Palestine, which from a British perspective is, well, a, a pretty ridiculous comparison. Um, and of course, it just speaks to the dangers of of these kind of flippant remarks made by Western leaders. That it's immediately jumped on by Russian propagandists as, uh, as trying to drive a wedge between Western allies. And I just wanted to, to comment on that, that loose talk costs lives, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would totally agree with Francis on that. I, I, yeah, I did forget to mention that Vladimir Salayev didn't just mention Ireland out of the blue. He latched onto um, onto uh, Joe Biden's remarks. That's absolutely right. Thanks, Natalia. And you also on the on the other side of the of propaganda have been reporting on a a Ukrainian pop song. Now we've been talking a lot about different methods of propaganda since this, or communications even since this podcast began. Can you take us? Tell us a bit more about this song and what exactly it's doing. Yeah, so this is a new pop song, which is probably, as far as I can tell, that's a um, that's a second time that um, a, a Western a piece of Western weaponry um, gets honored in pop culture in uh, Ukraine. Now there was a there was a song by a Ukrainian um, songwriter early in the war. Um, singing accolades to the Bayraktar combat drone. And this is a new song that praises combat effectiveness of the HIMARS artillery um, launchers, um, which is a U.S. made, um, which is a U.S. made artillery launchers, uh, launcher that has been in, in, the, in headlines quite often in recent weeks. 
um, has been described as one of the uh, one of the best and most effective uh, piece of Western weaponry that Ukraine has at its disposal. Uh, it has been able to target. Uh, um, it has been able to hit um, Russian targets deep behind the front lines, and uh, it has now got its own pop songs, uh, which is very upbeat, uh, sung by a beautiful baritone. Uh, that goes something like Hi Mars, uh, La La La, and anyhow, I hope the link will there'll be a link to that podcast so an- anyone can um, take a listen and enjoy. Thanks, Natalia. And yes, I'm sure we will find a way to link it at the bottom of the podcast episode when this comes out as a podcast later today. Just interesting to see the the levels that um, people will go to. I know we've spoken about the um, Russian warship campaign that's gone across Ukraine as well, and on soaps and um yeah sweets and all those kind of things so um the other i was hoping natalia was going to break out into song then (laughs) i have a terrible singing voice i'm going to spare you that pleasure (laughs) oh maybe next time um back on to propaganda though there's also been news today about um the Russian communications watchdog and the Wikimedia Foundation. Now, lots of us will know Wikimedia from the website, encyclopedia website, Wikipedia. Francis or Natalia, could you tell us a bit more about this? Uh, yeah, I can take this on quickly. Um, so, as um, as you might know, uh, Russia has blocked, um, in fact, ha- thousands of websites since the war started, um, ranging from uh, independent Russian language media uh, to social media websites. Um, Wikipedia is not blocked in Russia yet, um, um, just like YouTube, but obviously that's another step in putting pressure on um, international um, technology platforms like Google or Wikipedia to um, bend down to Russia's demands because Russia has been uh, demanding that uh, tech giants like Google or Wikipedia delete what they what Russia believes is um, uh, unlawful content, the content that, as they believe, um, spreads lies about the Russian war. And it's it's another warning for Wikipedia. It shows that the Kremlin is not yet ready to block it. It would be a major step. Um, but it looks like we're we're getting there. I think the other thing just to say on this is, of course, that the whole philosophy behind Wikipedia and websites like it is that they are that users are able to amend the edits, and it's meant to be sort of community run. It's a really the essence of of democracy and free exchange of information and ideas, and so the attempt to punish the Wikimedia Foundation and claim that it's violating Russia law and all this really is just a perfect symbolic example, I think, of the kind of attacks that are taking place within Russia on free speech. And of course, the Telegraph is one of those. We've been sanctioned by Russia and so um, you know, unable to to easily read our news there as a consequence of the same kind of suppression of free speech. Um, because as Natalia was saying, there is this narrative that uh, any criticisms of 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 the russian state uh, is a direct threat and is fake news as it were and and shouldn't be tolerated so it's as i say uh, some metaphors write themselves i think thanks francis now i think we're reaching towards the end of the time that we've got today natalia 
Wib, thank you so much for coming on with us today. If you could leave our listeners with a final thought. We haven't had you on the podcast in a little while. I'm wondering um, maybe how things have developed or is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with thinking about? Sure. Um, I think one thing I would say is to um, look out for now is the situation around Kherson, the Russia-occupied city. And uh, we saw that the only which is latches us back to the song about the HIMARS launchers. Now we know now we know that those launch artillery launchers have been used to target a bridge that links the city um, of Kherson to southern Ukraine and Crimea. So that bridge has been attacked by Ukrainians for two days in a row. Apparently, it's already in a very bad shape, and um, that's um, that potentially endangers Russian supplies from uh, Ukraine and also from sorry potential supplies from Russia. And um, it follows recent Ukrainian comments that they are gathering forces for a potential counteroffensive on, on, on the south. So I think this, is, this would be something for us to um, follow in the coming uh, days. Thanks, Natalia. What about you, Francis? Well, yesterday I spoke briefly about the Conservative leadership contest here in Britain. I just wanted to offer one other update on that. It's now been whittled down to three and will soon only be two. Uh, All of the candidates have really been focusing their campaigns on domestic issues here, particularly around the economic strategy. Ukraine has not been at the forefront of those discussions, but I think it's worthy of observation that it is quite possible, I think unlikely personally, I think Rishi Sunak, who's the former chancellor, will be one of the final two, but it is possible that Liz Truss, the current foreign secretary, very hawkish on Ukraine and indeed seems to be the favourite of the Ukraine foreign ministry to succeed, um, will be against Penny Morden, who herself is a military uh, figure, is in the Royal Navy and uh, also formerly a defence secretary in the previous Theresa May administration. So potentially two very hawkish candidates for future Prime Minister of the UK. As I say, I think the most un- the most likely outcome is that Rishi Sunak will be one will be one of the contenders and it will be between Liz Truss and Penny Mordaunt um, as to who has the second slot. But it's not guaranteed. And either way, I think the very fact that one of those two female figures will be in the final two will inevitably shape the the future direction of travel of the Conservative Party because Ukraine will become, I think, one of the big conversation points in the remaining six weeks of the campaign before the Prime Minister is selected by the Conservative Party membership. So um, I think this should be just commented on uh, as potentially of significance for the future direction of travel of Britain in, in, in terms of the war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss out. If you enjoyed this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. 
Ukraine, the latest, is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.